This episode is sponsored by Memento. Hi, welcome back to another episode of Real World Serverless, a podcast where I speak with real world practitioners and get their stories from the trenches. Today I'm joined by Dax Rad, who is one of the co-creators of SST. Hey man. Hey, how's it going? So yeah, we've been on this uh, private, uh, I guess, the independent consultants group uh, for a little while, and uh, I've been uh, quite familiar with uh, a lot of the things you've done, uh, especially around SST. And I think some of the things that you guys have done in there has been really interesting. Um, so I guess for anyone who's listening who hasn't seen SST before, maybe we can get a, get started by just having you introducing yourself, uh, your experience with AWS and serverless, and how did SST came about? Yeah, sure. So again, my name is Dax. I work on an open source framework called SST. I've been doing that for about two years now. Uh, prior to that, I was not really a big serverless person. I was not an early adopter of serverless. Uh, I still, I think at this point, I can't say I'm new to it anymore, but I still feel like one of the newer entrants. Um, prior to that, you know, most of my career has been at early stage companies doing, you know, building products. So a lot of that involved of course, doing the application side, but you know, I have to figure out deployment, a startup, you kind of do everything. So that's my background. I've done all kinds of deployments, starting from, you know, bare metal in the early days, moving to cloud with EC2 stuff, uh, doing, um, Kubernetes. I did Kubernetes for a long time with Terraform, all of that, uh, discovered serverless maybe two or three years ago and dove pretty head in, started building everything in that model. Uh, that was around when the SST open source project was launching. I was one of the first users, ended up contributing a lot back and ended up joining the team full-time, which you know, I've been doing for the past two years. Um, so I guess uh, for SST, for anyone who hasn't heard about SST, it's uh, short for serverless uh, stack. And uh, I guess in terms of how you would think about it, it's uh, quite different from, say, CloudFormation and Terraform. It's probably closer to CDK. Um, in terms of you know, being able to use a uh, general purpose uh, programming language. Uh, but I guess uh, from talking to you before, you have some really strong opinions about uh, CDK and uh, where CDK sort of falls down and why you see the need for something like serverless uh, stack or SST. So maybe yeah. can you explain some of your thinking around the CDK, what's you no know, good about it, what's you no know, bad about it, and why you, uh, there's, a, there's a room for something like uh, uh, SST instead? Yeah, sure. So I think it might help if I kind of explain what our scope of the problem we're trying to solve is. Uh, the company was founded not really to build a framework. They wanted to just build tools for the serverless ecosystem. And they started by building a pretty great product called Seed that helped you deploy serverless framework applications. And it was a CI tool, it just had like a bunch of really complimentary tools around, um, you know, really shipping an actual serverless project into production. Uh, what we quickly learned was the serverless community is growing and definitely bigger than it used to be, but nowhere as big as it needs to be. And that's why the framework was created. It wasn't really created to like build an IAC tool or anything. The problem that we set out to solve is why are so few companies, particularly startups, why are so few startups build not like, why are they not building on top of AWS and not building on top of these serverless patterns? Uh, so our scope really is, you know, AWS is a huge beast and most people are understandably overwhelmed by just thinking about it and they avoid it. Uh, what we find is most companies, there's like 3% of AWS that they really need to build most of their product. And can we take that 3% and build a really optimal experience around 
building applications with that. So obviously everything we're going to focus on is serverless. So things like, you know, Lambda functions, API gateway, queues, Dynamo, like anything that helps you build a fully serverless application that doesn't require you to manage anything. We focus on optimizing that experience. So other tools like CDK or CloudFormation or Terraform, their scope is much larger. They need to support all of AWS. So they don't, they can't like narrow their focus as much. And for that reason, some of the things aren't as optimal as they can be. We like being built on top of these tools because, you know, like I said, most of what companies need falls under this, the small percentage of services, but every company is different and they always need to drop down into some advanced stuff every once in a while. Like they might need like one or two services that aren't the norm. So we like being built on top of these tools because. It lets people do that and they're not worried that, hey, if I use SST, I'm, I'm going to be stuck and I'm not going to be able to do what I need to do. Um, but our focus really is trying to narrow the scope much more than what the existing tools are. So another angle of that, like besides the supporting all of AWS, we also very heavily focus just on TypeScript. Um, things like CDK are optimized for a constraint they accepted was we're going to support multiple languages. And there's just a reality of when you make that decision, your API design and the kind of developer experience around what you build is constrained. You can only use aspects that are common to all the languages you're trying to support. Uh, for us, like we're really heavy into TypeScript and we think most of our, most of CDK users probably use TypeScript. Almost all of our users are using TypeScript primarily, and they might mix in other languages here and there. Uh, if you're really into TypeScript, you can do a lot of really advanced things with TypeScript generics and like all this, all the heavy inference that TypeScript provides that you can't really do when you're building a like multi, multi-language solution, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think that feeds back into a lot of the common, well, a lot of problems we're seeing right now with the AWS SDK V3 for JavaScript. The fact that, that they need to support different languages means that they want to use uh, something that can generate code from, you know, from one template and uh, spit out the uh, SDKs for different languages. That's the whole Smithy thing uh, that mm -hmm. they've done. Uh, but the result of that is that you end up with this uh, really user-unfriendly SDKs uh, and constructs. It doesn't make any sense. Um, and, uh, you know, right now, um, AWS SDK v2 for JavaScript has is being deprecated and we, mm -hmm. we still have lots of problems. Uh, and the documentation is auto, is also, uh, auto generated, which I think we just saw a thread from, uh, Ann Stanley talking about, uh, no, you just, you can't find the, how to do basic things like uploading, um, a folder to S3, common yeah. operations that should be well documented is just not there because the documentations are not written, uh, for, no, someone, but it's generated from code, and there's just a lot of things that uh, uh, you're also still missing uh, an ORM layer, or at least a lightweight ORM layer that can transfer translate from the DynamoDB constructs to mm -hmm. you know, just common JavaScript uh, JSON constructs, uh, things like that, which are still just missing because they are trying. You no, know, they've gone down this approach of trying to minimize the amount of work uh, that they have to do to support different languages. Where even though now I would probably argue that for a company the size of AWS, they can probably throw a team together and just yeah. do something just uh, specific for JavaScript and TypeScript, and then have another team looking after Python, given the size of you know AWS and how much revenue it brings. Yeah, this is a big concept that is. I think this is interesting because some of the instincts around this stuff are a little counterintuitive. I think when you work on a product like a normal product that serves end users, 
you do really focus on maintainability and keeping things simple so you can iterate, right? You want to not, uh, you want to like really focus on keeping your code base clean. Like, so you can hire people, scale, like all those usual instincts. And as you get more experience, you like start to get better at those things. When you're building open source stuff for other developers, you kind of have to do the opposite of that in a lot of ways. And I first heard this concept from Dan Abramov of the react from the react team. He talks about absorbing complexity and he explicitly states that keeping the react code base maintainable or clean or easy to read is a non goal. It was very different from like, you would never think like, oh, I'm not, I don't care about keeping this code base maintainable. The reason he says that is oftentimes you have to, you end up shoving complexity to your users instead of absorbing it. And your job as a library creator is to absorb complexity. It's to do the annoying, tedious work so that the library consumers don't have to. And that's really how you're delivering value. Right? So if you look at exactly what you were saying, um, of course, with my normal mindset, I would think oh yeah, it sucks that we're maintaining all these separate uh, API libraries for all these different languages. Let's create like one unified pipeline so it's easy for us to maintain. But the fundamental trade-off you're making there is you can't deliver an incredible experience for each language now because you have you know, you have this unified model. So you aren't doing the job of absorbing the complexity for your users. You're trading that off to make things more maintainable for you. And I think when open source projects and dev tools like understand this, that you kind of need to operate in this reverse way, you end up with much better results. And we try to keep this in mind. Like we don't, like we don't get this perfectly either. Um, but we try to keep in mind that if something is tedious and annoying, that's actually a signal that we should do it because that like makes it so nobody else has to do it. And you can see that in places in, in SST we've taken on, we've taken on things that we really don't want to do. Um, but it's clear that, you know, someone has to do it and, and we, and we have to do it. So yeah, it's a different mindset. Yeah. It's something that I've uh, spoken with a lot of uh, more junior developers in the past uh, that who, um, values elegance in your solution over the actual end user experience when we're building a product. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, like I said, I often just say that. No, people don't care if uh, if your solution is beautiful, it's elegant. Uh, if it's not, it's, if it's not actually making users' experience better, they're not going to use it. It's, it's it's junk. It's useless. And it's great that uh, you've got that, that uh, quote from uh, Dan uh, Abraham about you know, that's a that's actually a philosophy that they've uh, kind of coded into how uh, the React team should behave and they should uh, mm -hmm. uh, aim to design the the React library so that like I said, they will absorb the complexity themselves rather than passing it along to the developers that's going to be using their tools. And that's something that I guess uh, I think uh, is, is missed in a lot of the um, open source community where, you know, I'll, I'll tell some of the open source libraries, the maintainers, that now this clearly doesn't work. Uh, and uh, and uh, I think one example recently was uh, uh, on the MIDI, I think, uh, the MIDI middleware engine, um, mm -hmm. there were some prop, there were some, uh, problems with the way, uh, when you're using, say, the SSM middleware, uh, they, they moved to the, I think, later versions of Node and using the, the, the new sort of, uh, um, exception syntax. And so they're not, um, uh, monkey patching the error object anymore to include mm -hmm. when there's an error from talking, you know, talking to, uh, SSM service. 
And I'll say you know, clearly when we are using your, your, your middleware and we're getting an error, now we we'll just get this jumbled nonsense that doesn't tell me what it was. Whereas before I can see the error was access deny exception from the SSM service. Um, and, and the reason why they didn't run change it was because, well, you know, that's something that uh, we want to use as the new current syntax for, you know, errors uh, in the mm -hmm. node 16 plus. And instead the problem should be solved within the Lambda service, which is, you know, two is it's a good argument. It should be fixed in the Lambda service. But in the meantime, you know, your user just got to be hanging there getting errors uh, from SSM and not knowing what the hell is actually going on. So I think this is an example of uh, where we should be putting the, the needs of the users of our libraries over what we perceive to be an elegant solution. Yeah, yeah. What you describe is what we go through all the time, like the exact flow. A user will complain about the problem. We'll spend some time understanding it. We'll conclude, oh, this should just be something AWS fixes. And then the immediate next thought is, well, that's not a good excuse. Like, okay, let's just find some, some way to like patch it in the meantime. And there's all sorts of really weird stuff that we do. Uh, it's stuff that I feel, you know, sometimes I feel weird about including it. Like this is like such a weird, you know, it feels like a hack or it feels like wrong, but at the end of the day, it's what, you know, unblocks, unblocks users. And it's, uh, I think it's, it's been an interesting experience for me because, you know, working and my whole career has been pretty much in startups. So I'm used to this idea of you talk to users, understand their problems, solve it, repeat, 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 iterate. Uh, so it's the same thing here, except it's being applied to like software itself. Like the product isn't something else and your users are very competent, at least compared to the users I've had before that, you know, weren't exactly technical. They can kind of describe pretty sophisticated scenarios. They can also, it's, it works in both ways, right? It's great because they can help you a lot because they're very technical, but they're also capable of making wrong decisions in a very sophisticated way, if that makes sense. Um, so trying to like correct some of the, some of the things that we understand don't work well, it's a lot more challenging because you're users are smart and they can kind of argue with you. Um, so it's kind of like finding the right balance there has, has been interesting. I guess that they are also more prone to offering solutions as opposed to just explaining what a problem is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I think we're in a, we're in a really lucky position in that, you know, if I was just a normal, if I'm just building a serverless application and I'm trying to like figure out, okay, this framework needs a new construct or a new, new concept to help me solve this. It's a little bit tricky because you can only really apply that to your own project. Uh, but because our community is pretty large at this point, we get to see thousands of projects with all kinds of setups using all kinds of services, um, anything from giant company to small company. So our job is easy in that we can eliminate solutions pretty quickly because we know, okay, this won't work for them. This won't work for them. This won't work for them. And we pretty much get driven down into, okay, there's really only one way we can solve a given problem. Uh, that's what's great about open source. Like the scale you're able to operate at is is really fantastic and ever since we launched uh sc 2.0 the code base has been a lot friendlier for contributions and i think we've gotten more i think in the past two weeks we've gotten more contributors than we have in the last like year uh, so it just feels like we're just a team of three but people just find these small bugs and fix it and things that would take us like several days of focus and yeah it feels like a superpower in a lot of ways yeah, that is. Uh, I guess that's that was also one of the things that uh, really made the server framework uh, tick was that uh, it had a massive uh, uh, user base and you know, who are really eager to contribute. And I guess one of the things that I worry about when you have uh, something like that, you know, um, an environment like that, is that uh, it can sometimes uh, lack. Uh, 
direction or vision. Uh, if everything is left over to left to the contributors, which they all come from different backgrounds, lots of different uh, ideas in terms of what works well for one group versus another. You know, common I guess the common place that that shows up would be where you've got enterprise users who's got you know, specific requirements that often need to you know, cater for different uh, usage patterns like you know lots of EPCs and stuff like that versus uh, the more sort of startup uh, um, environment where you want something easy and quick and just get you over the line uh, and you don't have to have all the gazillion numbers of different configurations that the underlying constructs allows you to have. Um, what's kind of your approach towards uh, keeping a balance of uh, having a long-term vision about what the product uh, is going to look like today, but also what it's going to look like in a couple of years' time versus uh, getting as much contribution from the community and uh, letting the community speak its voice uh, as possible? Yeah, this is a, it's a really great question. So one of the things I really believe in uh, when it comes to open source is these projects need strong identity in terms of the people working on them. Of course, there's an overall ecosystem, but in terms of the people that, you know, work on it full time, uh, there needs to be a strong identity behind it. Like you need to know who is working on this, not just like their name. You need to know what's their background, what kind of stuff do they believe in? What do they get excited about? Uh, I think that helps the community understand, okay, like, of course, no framework can solve literally every possible use case, but you know, I understand Dax. I understand that. His background is, you know, with a, with a lot of earlier stage companies, his background is shipping, you know, web applications. I know he really cares about TypeScript. I know, you know, he gets excited about type safety. So you can kind of, the community has a sense of, okay, because, you know, Dax is, is stewarding this, this project, we know the types of places it's going to go to. And that kind of self-selects some people out. Like they know that if the direction that I'm going, it doesn't align with them, it's maybe not the right project for them. And it is a challenge because, uh, we're always evolving how we're thinking about things and we're constantly thinking about who's our ideal audience, who's our ideal audience, like what we like imagine them in their head In our head, we describe them. Um, and like I said, for us, it's, uh, at one point it was people that are trying to do serverless, like let's help make it easier. And that's like a very specific persona because if you're already doing serverless at this point, you have a certain background, have a certain skill set, and you have a certain history with, with what you're used to and, and your mindset around it. But that's shifted over time to that's not a big enough pool. Like we want to get the whole world like using this type of thing. Uh, so that's a very different persona, right? Uh, they're thinking in different ways, and that's who we're really focused on right now. It's painful because in these transitions, we lose, we potentially lose some of our best, like our favorite users from the community, because we're no longer exactly lined up with them. And it is painful, but the reality is, is you need to be able to make those jumps because if you don't, you will kind of get locked in into a certain place and you'll never, like we just talk about it as like a local maximum. Like you've done really well for a certain environment, but you're never really going to grow, grow beyond that. And that kind of limits how much impact you can make. And I think that one of the reasons that serverless is not bigger despite how long it's been around is because of this exact dynamic. I think projects get traction with this early adopter community. I'm still going to call everyone using serverless today, early adopters. Cause that, that is the case. If you look at the numbers, um, and it's, and that, and that's big enough to like sustain a business or sustain a, a framework. And they kind of stop there and they don't like kind of cannibalize their own thing and, and reach out to this larger audience that really has no idea what we're doing and just thinks, everything AWS is like overwhelming or scary or overkill. And 
we see this every single day. Um, so for us at this point, it's our focus is really, um, if you are someone starting a company and, and you're trying to like go from zero, but you're competent enough to know that something really like simple, like a, uh, like a Heroku style platform is gonna, you're gonna like outgrow that too quickly. So you like, know you should be using AWS, but you're like not hundred percent sure how to use it. That exact, that is our focus right now. Uh, of course we have users that are at big, huge enterprise companies that use it. And we do get feature requests from them for things that, uh, we just find kind of funny cause they're not really relevant to us. And we, we do handle most of them. Some of them, you know, maybe a little bit too much work for us, but it'll be things like, you know, our compliance department doesn't allow us to use AD like IOT, for example, and a portion of your product requires that. So like, what's a good workaround for that? And for our target audience, like what compliance department, like you can just do whatever you want and ship it like in an hour. So, uh, it is a, it is a challenging trade-off, but we're pretty clear on who we're targeting. Cause that's where we see all the potential for growth in this space. Database caching is a powerful tool. It makes your application faster, more durable, and improves your uptime. But it usually involves a lot of manual configurations, which can be painful. Memento's serverless caching is different. You can unlock all the benefits of database caching without any of the operational headaches. It works at any scale, and its pay-per-use pricing model means you don't have to waste money to over-provision for peak traffic. It's easy and free to get started. Visit goldmemento.co slash real world to try it out. That's goldmemento dot co slash real world. The link is also in the description below. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, that's uh, that's really interesting. Uh, that's actually something that I've run across uh, with my enterprise clients uh, quite a bit mm -hmm. as well. Just uh, you know, dealing with uh, compliance uh, or, or or infosec requirements is often uh, many multi months uh, effort to um, get the okay to actually use one service, and uh, a lot of time it's not based on any concrete. Um, I guess a, 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 a thread vector, uh, mm -hmm. but it's more just about well, we don't really know this thing. Uh, we know we you know we, we we don't want to stick our reputation on the line in case something happens. Uh, so even though you know like something like AppSync or whatever service that AWS offers can um, most likely be more secure than the whatever alternative that they had in mind. Um, but you no, know, they don't know it. Uh, it's really hard to convince someone whose job is going to be on the line uh, if they sign off on you using something and something goes wrong because of that. Um, it's uh, yeah, yeah, it's a very interesting uh, dynamic. And I guess uh, you said that most of your experience uh, previously has been working with uh, startups. Uh, do you have some maybe some stories uh, like you know from the uh, for uh, war stories that you can share in terms of uh, <laughs> you know things that you've seen companies that do really well um, to adopt. AWS and serverless and maybe counter examples of you know, what not to do when you are startup and looking to start uh, building a new product on AWS and serverless. Yeah, I think I can maybe talk about my own mindset and how it's changed and the stuff that I used to do that I now think is, is dumb and I was completely wrong about. Um, so like I said, I was always pretty much when I worked either as a consultant or, you know, when I was, you know, either like founding a startup, whatever it was, just in these early stage roles, uh, I always had to manage the infrastructure. So I developed those skills and I was a big Kubernetes user for a very long time and a big proponent of using Kubernetes. And I had the very classic logic around it. And it was, and this was especially when I was a consultant, um, 
Kubernetes is neutral, right? Like it runs anywhere. You can, you're not like tied into a specific cloud. You're not, you know, tied into all these specific things. And I saw that as an advantage, like the whole vendor lock-in thing. Like I was kind of saying all the classic stuff that isn't exactly correct. Um, so I was always using Kubernetes and I realized at some point that when I would say something like, we don't want to get locked into this vendor. We want to be able to like move around, whatever. That obviously is a ridiculous scenario. Like no company I ever worked in really needed to switch off of AWS or Google cloud or whatever we were using. It was like a contrived scenario, but there was a kernel of truth in there, which is I wasn't really worried about the company being locked in. I was thinking about my own opportunities as an engineer, right? Cause if I learn Kubernetes and I'm an expert at that, I can go work anywhere that's using Kubernetes. That's the only box that I need to look for. Like they're using Kubernetes, got it. I can work there. doesn't matter if they're on AWS. It doesn't matter if they're in Google cloud. My dream was that everybody in the world uses this thing. That way I don't have to develop any specific skill sets. Right? So I think a lot of these companies, uh, have engineering teams and it seems like they're aligned with what's best for the company. And like the logic seems like it makes sense, but oftentimes if you think about it, it's coming from a personal desire, which there's, there's no issue with that. Like we all need to be personally, like when you think about what's best for us, but a lot of this logic has been rooted in, um, I only want to learn one thing and like that way that maximizes my, my own opportunities. Cause you're never like a company's never going to switch vendors, but employees are going to switch companies and having a consistent framework across any company you work at that is desirable. Um, so I was doing that for a long time. And then at some point I realized, wow, I've been ignoring, I've been intentionally ignoring all of these like AWS specific details that actually would have saved me a bunch of time. You know, anytime I needed to do real time before that meant I was deploying RabbitMQ. Anytime I needed any kind of pub sub system, I was like just deploying like a RabbitMQ server. I even like read a whole book on RabbitMQ. I was like an expert on that. And I just did not know that most of those times I could just use SQS, which would have been a lot simpler, a lot easier. And with, and with EventBridge coming out, I could have used that. And I just didn't know about all these options. And I just had these habits of kind of repeatedly deploying the same like neutral software everywhere, totally unaware that I was recreating all this work. Uh, and the irony of all, it is, all this is when you're doing things a certain way that you're comfortable with, you really rationalize everything. I really felt like we were super efficient and, and in a lot of ways we were, but we were just compensating for, you know, being bogged down in certain places and we were still relatively efficient overall. So it felt like, okay, everything we're doing must be right. But you know, over time just kind of realized, yeah, like it's my thinking around this has been hundred percent wrong. And there's not often times in your career where you like completely 180. Um, but I definitely, I definitely have. And that's why it's interesting for me to see, now, when I talk about serverless or people using AWS more, um, I get the opposite side of the argument. And it's interesting for me because I'm not just arguing against a random person. I'm arguing against a previous version of myself. So these are like somewhat challenging conversations for me to have because I totally get where they're coming from, but I kind of just want to be like, just like, wait, like I used to be like you and I grew out of it. Right. And that's really a lot of what, what these debates come down to. Um, definitely did a lot of over-engineering and making stuff too complicated yeah you know i have uh, lots of uh, conversations on the other side of uh, what you would have been sort of talking about vendor locking and things like that and i always wonder that uh, at the end of the day maybe that's all it was going on was was the uh, was the people who just didn't want to learn a new thing to, uh, it wasn't really thinking about uh, what's right for the company but rather mm -hmm. what's right for themselves uh, but obviously no one will actually 
so openly, well, openly admit that, or maybe they don't even realize that's what they're actually doing. Uh, but oftentimes, I, I just kind of theorize that uh, we are just bumping into uh, developer identities, uh, people who mm -hmm. identify themselves as I'm a .NET developer or I'm a, a Kubernetes developer. That is part of my identity. And if someone was to you know, tell me that there's a better way to do that, you know, they are they, they gotta be wrong because <laughs> otherwise, yeah. uh, what what am I doing? And I think it's uh, it's it takes a lot of um, I guess critical thinking and the self reflection to realize uh, you know when you're saying those things, uh, what it is that you really uh, you know, worry about, what you what it is that you're really arguing for. Um, and I think that's you know, it's, it's great that you're able to get to that point and uh, and uh, you know, come to come to the come to the, the dark <laughs> side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's another thing I talk about a lot. It's uh, it, it is a hard because you know we're all motivated by getting better and we're proud of the progress we've made. But oftentimes to get to the next level, you have to kill the things you're proud of. Like there was a time where I was very good at Kubernetes and I was very good at all that that world and I understood everything and that's something I was proud of and it was a skill that I hoped other people valued in me and it was how I would get hired and at some point I had to be like okay this is no longer relevant and I can't sit on this anymore but this has happened enough times in my career where now I know that it's going to feel painful and it still feels painful every time but the world moves on and things that were important are no longer important like I used to be an expert at all these like crazy CSS hacks on the front end to do like all kinds of crazy layouts, like, like CSS float and all this stuff. And at some point Flexbox came out and all that knowledge just became irrelevant. Um, so you're constantly like killing older versions of yourself and, and recreating yourself. And the faster you can do that, uh, you know, you can only resist for so long. Eventually you, you will flip cause the market pushes you in a certain direction. Uh, so the longer you resist, it's just kind of a waste, waste of time. Just kind of get excited about the new thing. Cause it's usually you choose the right way to go. Yeah, and I guess that we are just all collectively waiting for the market forces to do its magic and eventually get more people to, you know, come to the same conclusions that you have that it's more efficient to and to, to be able to build things quickly with a smaller team by you know, leveraging serverless and the cloud to its fullest as opposed to try to build everything yourself. But when you're talking about uh, having to reinvent yourself and uh, relearn or rather unlearn some of the things you've learned in the past, uh, I have gone through that multiple times. Uh, and back in the day, I was, uh, I was convinced that the future of uh, computing is going to be, you know, determined by some new programming language, some new, uh, paradigm. So I spent a lot of time, uh, kind of, uh, learning functional programming as I actually went through, I guess, uh, a period of maybe four or five years where I was, uh, trying to learn a new language or paradigm every year. I was playing around with, uh, you know, Rust before it was one, uh, version one, you know, uh, really you know, trying out the whole learning, uh, ownership system it had. I was playing around with Go, spent a bit of time with uh, the Haskell and I got really into F sharp and I was going around telling people things like, uh, oh, uh, make an invalid state in your application unrepresentable oh, with, yeah. uh, this, <laughs> with types, uh, things like that. Yeah. Uh, but then the, you know, when serverless came around and it became uh, you know, clear to me later on that, well, you know, most of the things that we were trying to solve, a lot of problems we we're trying to solve with the programming languages and constructs we have in there, well, they're actually better served of the at the, uh, at the layer above in the architecture level by using the right services that has the right characteristics. And again, that was a big reflection point for me to kind of realize uh, while well, a lot of time I spent just uh, 
well, kind of went nothing. Well, maybe not nothing. <laughs> it was, you still learn something from that. It still kind of enriches your perspective when looking at different services and, you know, understanding how certain things work. Uh, but also sometimes uh, look at architectural uh, behaviors and patterns and see the uh, kind of similarities to some of the things that at the lower level in terms of the, you know, for example, I was really, really big fan of Erlang. I really liked the you know, actor's model. Um, it's funny you bring that up because as you were talking about this, I was going to share like, yeah, I did Elixir, you know, it was just built on top of Erlang for, for many, many years. And I love the actor model and I built tons of like complex distributed systems, built a database, all kinds of stuff. And all that just became irrelevant with something like Lambda, which is like effectively infinitely scalable and makes all of that stuff, which I love. And to this day, still think it's, it's brilliant, but it's just no longer relevant. So yeah, very similar paths. I think we've taken maybe around the same time as well. Yeah, I think, but I also think uh, some of the things that uh, you uh, makes you appreciate uh, something like Erlang and the actor model, some of those things are actually can be found in the Lambda's mm -hmm. execution environment as well. The fact that uh, Lambda workers share nothing means that you have the same characteristics of uh, being able to you know, have a system that doesn't just, oh, dies, uh, the whole thing just dies because mm -hmm. of, uh, say, you know, a, 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 um, an exception at the kernel level or something like that, uh, where you've got this behavior of uh, you know, lots of small independent workers that can all you know, spawn up and fail, very similar to kind of actors uh, that, you know, mm -hmm. that can come up and, and go as, uh, as, as is necessary. So I think that's kind of things we learn from uh, from you know, using Erlang. They're still useful in terms of uh, giving us that perspective, but maybe just not something that we have to use every single day. Um, you know, when we're trying to build a new product uh, as quickly as possible. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's never a waste to learn anything because it shows up over and over in different flavors. And yeah, I felt the exact same way. I was like, oh, this is just all the same concepts that I loved in the Erlang world, but without managing the stuff yourself but everything else is still preserved and you don't like now you're not limited to just finding that in in our lane you can kind of get all the same stuff everywhere um but again it goes back to the identity thing i like really saw myself as oh i get this erlang stuff and nobody else gets it and like i'm really i'm really proud of that fact and i'm like connected with all the people that you know are in this world because they appreciate this thing and suddenly that's now available to everywhere part of me was like uh like i lost this thing but you know it's 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 all short term, like long term, none of this stuff really matters and, and, and the world shifts and you shift along with it. And so I guess the, you know, between Erlang and JavaScript or TypeScript that uh, you've got two, uh, you know, things that, that you really, you know, you're really found of. Uh, so, and you talked about uh, how with, um, with SST, you guys are looking for, well, looking at the, the ideal customer being someone who just want to build something and uh, you're trying to help them um, get stuff, uh, get stuff done without having to force them to learn all the ins and outs of AWS. Um, mm -hmm. so that's very similar, I guess, to a lot of the other frameworks out there. Like, uh, uh Brian Rue has, uh, has, has built Begin, uh, very similar kind of a uh, concept, I guess, or maybe ideals in terms of, uh, mm -hmm. here's a few services that we really optimize the framework towards. Uh, but then, you know, other things that uh, if you want to do them, maybe it's not the right framework to use. How would you say, you know, uh, SST is, uh, is different from some of the other options out there who are also targeting the similar kind of audience? Yeah. So I think there's a spectrum of, so when you talk about, uh, making it easy to get started, I fundamentally believe there is a, there's a trade-off that you cannot escape where the easier you make something to get started, the less maintainable it becomes long-term. So if you look at things on the extreme side, uh, it, Think about something like Superbase, which is like very geared towards 
nothing will beat Superbase in getting your V1 out. It's just super productive to get your first version out. But if you're building a real company that grows in complexity, iterates, pivots, hires new people, all that stuff, you know, it's maybe not exactly the right choice because that's not really what they're optimizing for. So for us, we really care about maintainability. So that means as stuff gets more complex, does your, is it so easy to ship things? Which means our stuff is not the simplest to get started with on day one. Like we're never going to be posting some example where you can like build a whole app in, in like, you know, 15 minutes or something. It's just never going to be something we're going to be able to accomplish because we care about this other thing. So our framework has stuff that we think are important for you know, building sustainable products. Um, things like domain-driven design, we think it's important for, especially with evented systems like, like AWS serverless, uh, you, you typically find we think it's an old pattern that has been around for a while and has been the key common thing whenever we look at any maintainable system that you break up your business into domains, you implement the business logic in there, you try to keep them as little, you try to minimize dependency between each other and you don't tie them to any specific like interface. So they're not like, you know, a lot of these easy to get started frameworks will do something like define your database schema and then get like a GraphQL API automatically, which then your front end can just connect to extremely productive, but you know, it kind of violates some of these principles of domain driven design, which are very important when it comes to refactoring iter iterating, like all the stuff you typically find in the life cycle of, of a company. So we try to find our balance between decently easy to get started. Um, but you know, you're still gonna have to learn some stuff a little bit of AWS, a little bit of the design patterns that we think lead to maintainable code. Um, but you know, not anything too crazy in terms of like, you're not going there, like reading AWS docs. Like you don't really have to read the AWS docs or ship something with SST. Um, and then long-term, you know, ideally you might drill down deeper into that stuff. If you need more advanced things, you might learn some of that stuff progressively. Uh, we're all about like progressive disclosure. Um, we're less about like, simplifying things and more about like delaying when you need to know about them. Um, so you might like not need to know about certain things, but then three months in, you become more of an expert. I think spreading that out instead of having this like big upfront cost makes it more practical for people to get into this, this world. The other thing is, I think we have like a kind of a funny background in that we obviously do all this infrastructure stuff, but we're also really heavily involved in like the, the web dev world, like the front end world. Um, and we think there's really incredible amazing stuff happening there that is serverless native like the backend world probably wouldn't even think about that in that way but this part of the, the part of the front world i'm describing no one's even thinking in a non-serverless way anymore there's not even this talk of like serverless versus non-serverless by default everything is serverless to the point where people don't even know that word it's just the way things work um so we spend a lot of time making sure these new frameworks these like new modern this new modern tooling people are really excited about We'll just work out of the box with SST. So if you're using Astro for your marketing site, it's just going to work and deploy it. Otherwise, you don't have to worry about it. If you're using Next.js or Solid Start or Svelte Kit, whatever it is, we put in the work to really support those in a way that works really well. I think the AWS community tends to be a little bit more backend and infrastructure focused. So this kind of a thing just is not as much on their radar. Uh, I think the Amplify team is maybe the one team that you know, focuses a little bit more on that. Um, but these other tools are more like infrastructure tools, right? You're not, it's good. It, just like from, even from like a branding perspective, like you, you would probably find it weird if serverless frameworks are doing stuff with, with Astro, like it's just not part of like what, what they do. Um, but that's kind of where we fit in because we work with 
a lot of companies that are shipping all portions of the app. Usually it's individual developer that is doing both the front end and the back end and everything in between. Um, so yeah, we naturally are pushed in that direction. Okay, so you mentioned a few things there, uh, which I want to touch on. Um, you mentioned Amplify, uh, which, like I said, uh, focuses more on the sort of front-end uh, um, developers. Uh, but you also talked about uh, the need to um, not focus entirely on, you know, it's easier to get started, but also think about what you're going to do in the future. And that's one of the things that uh, I that really worries me about the Amplify, because uh, there is no escape hatch. At least the escape hatch they do give you is not sufficient. Um, I think uh, last, uh, so they announced, uh, what was it, uh, the last, no, not last uh, reInvent, I think a couple of months before reInvent actually, um, they announced the ability to export your Amplify stack into a CDK construct, but it's a black box construct, which means you still can't just customize individual resources in your application, which is uh, where, you know, when you run into problems and limitations with Amplify, that's usually what you need to do to be able to customize uh, certain resources, settings in a particular way that Amplify doesn't allow you to. Um, so is that something that you guys have uh, sort of put much thought into on the SST in terms of, uh, okay, when someone does eventually outgrow our framework how can they get out of the framework and use move to something else uh, gracefully without having to start from scratch and uh, rebuild the entire application which i've seen a few clients having to do that once they hit the limits of uh, amplify and uh, they've you know spend way more effort trying to work around it than the the, mm -hmm. the, the productivity they got from it in, uh, initially yeah, this is something we think about a lot because uh, we see a lot of our users are in that situation where they're coming from Amplify. Uh, I think we're kind of in a it's we have a disadvantage that I think is actually an advantage. We have no ability to deploy anything inside AWS, but Amplify does, right? Amplify can build a managed service for something. Like if they want to host Next.js, they can get AWS to like build a Next.js service. That's an advantage they have, but we don't have that because we're external which means the way we operate is more like, I'm just a normal customer of AWS. I'm trying to figure out the best way to take what AWS offers and piece together something good. Uh, and that's how we operate. We operate, like I'm, most of the features in SST come from a real product that I'm building. Uh, so me and my wife have a product that we build and it's all built on AWS, it's built on SST. And as I run into new challenges, like, okay, we need to do real time now. What's the best way to do real time in AWS? I'll build it there and I'll extract the best parts and pull it into SST. So at the end of the day, all of our components are just stuff you could have come up with yourself. We just kind of did, we have the time, the resources to like do that research that maybe you don't have the time to do because you're trying to, you know, ship one feature in your application. Um, so our job is less around like inventing and more around trying out all different options. Um, figuring out the best ones, plugging in gas with other open source tools. Like a lot of our like stack, the people that perceives our stack are just combinations of other tools we found that are really good. Like if you look at our electric or dynamo DB setup, uh, most of that is from a TypeScript library called electro DB that makes interfacing with dynamo very good. Um, so it's not a black box and not something we invented. It's something we're recommending that most people use. If you don't like it, you can swap that out. So, we haven't really found situations where people need to eject out. And that's something we're really cautious of. Like we don't want, we really want to take you all the way to IPO. Like we want to be with you on day one and we want to still be there when your company is huge and successful. Um, and for the most part, we, we've seen that, that work well. 
Um, and it's important to us, right? We're pretty incentivized to do that because we're trying to build a real business, which means if our best users are ejecting out of us at some point, that's that, that would have been our best paying users, right? Uh, so for us, it's not just like a philosophy. It's a matter of us continuing to exist means we need to serve people from when they're not making any money to when they're making a lot of money. Okay, and I uh, hope that you guys uh, do well. And I've been uh, following uh, Frank and uh, uh, and uh, I forgot his uh, partner's uh, name. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, I've been following their work since uh, you know Seed, which uh, this uh, was quite interesting service. Uh, it's a shame a lot of the services those in those early days haven't really quite got the momentum. Uh, as the, I guess the community was still quite small, so and um, and but yeah, I hope you guys uh, you know uh, do well with SST and uh, yeah, you know, best of luck. Yeah, appreciate it. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. And uh, yeah, we should uh, I guess we should, we should catch up again and uh, talk about uh, Erlang in the future and uh, yeah. talk about all the <laughs> have our little uh, Erlang appreciation the club. <laughs> yeah, I love to reminisce because, like I said, I still love my time with the, in that world and just have really good memories of, of all of it. <laughs> yeah, a lot of it is just so elegant. I, just, yeah. I love the, the, the sort of conceptual model of um, of actors, even though I think uh, Joe Armstrong has told me a few times that, uh, oh yeah, we didn't you know, set out to implement uh, the actor model. It just oh, really? happened. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. Was, um, <laughs> uh, before he passed, I had a, quite a few chances to sort of run into him because uh, he yeah. was quite um, uh, uh, quite like com uh, well, frequent goer at uh, a lot of his functional conferences uh, in, mm. the, in Europe. Uh, get to meet, meet him quite a few times, and he, uh, him and uh, and Robert Verding, and uh, they mm -hmm. often uh, come together to some of these conferences uh, that I also used to go a lot as well. Uh, and he, uh, yeah, they used to talk about how um, they just sat down and uh, and thought about what are the, the characteristics of uh, uh, that you want from a distributed system, and it just happens to coincide with the, <laughs> the, the actor model that the Carl Hewitt came up with uh, uh, around the same time, I guess. So uh, yeah, it's, it's quite it's quite it's quite funny that uh, the whole thing just kind of come together nicely, uh, and then come associated with each other, even though you know, they were they were all kind of developed separately. Uh, yeah, I forgot yeah. who it was that said uh, you know, when ideas are not um, invented, they are discovered. This right. feels like one one of those uh, moments where you know, there's some fundamental sort of truths, uh, some uh, some characteristics that are universally good for a particular scenario, and the two groups of people you know, discover them in different you know, in different ways. One in a more sort of practical um, uh, programming language design way, the other one from a more conceptual sort of, you know, uh, thinking about computation uh, models. But yeah, yeah, that, stuff. That, yeah, it's really cool. Like, I think you know when a field's making progress when you start to see ideas converge together. Um, yeah, it's a really good example. I didn't, I didn't know that. Very cool. But yeah, let's uh, let's let's maybe take that offline, and uh, we can <laughs> <laughs> we can reminisce about uh, Erlang and acting models and yeah. another time. But yeah, really nice uh, talking to you today. Uh, really learned a lot about you and the SSST. Uh, so uh, yeah, hope that you guys do well, and I'll keep an eye on the, what you guys do next. Cool. Thanks. Right, take it easy. See ya. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Real World Serverless. I want to thank Memento for sponsoring this episode. Get all the benefits of database caching and none of the operational headaches with Memento Serverless Cache. Start free at gomemento.co slash realworld. That's go, M-O-M-E-N-T-O dot C-O slash realworld. So that's it for another episode of Real World Serverless. To access the show notes, please go to realworldserverless.com. 
If you want to learn how to build production-ready serverless applications, please check out my upcoming courses at productionreadyserverless.com. And I'll see you guys next time.